Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today we bring you the story of Albert Goodwill Spaulding, or Al Spaulding for short. The name may sound familiar to a basketball fan, particularly an NBA fan, because for decades the NBA used basketballs made by the Spalding Company. We are talking about the same guy. Al Spalding is the founder of the Spalding Sporting Goods Company. His name is on millions of basketballs all over the world. But who was Al Spalding? He was not a basketball player, which makes him an unusual subject for a story by Basketball History 101. Al Spalding was a professional baseball player in the 1870s. Yes, I said the 1870s. He was born in Byron, Illinois on September 2nd, 1849. When he was born, the President of the United States was Zachary Taylor. The American Civil War would not start until he was already 11 years old. He grew up and attended Rockford Central High School in Rockford, Illinois. From there, he began to build a reputation as an ace baseball player. He played for a few different amateur teams in the area, including teams like the Mercantiles and the Rockford Four Cities. Remember, this was the 1860s when his amateur baseball career was just getting started. Professional sports in the 1860s was nothing like what they are today. We are literally talking about something that happened 160 years ago. There was also the American Civil War going on, which took time and resources away from things like baseball in order to try to win the war. As the dust settled after the end of the Civil War, some resources, time, and money began to flow into recreational areas. And one of those areas was this relatively new game called baseball. A new organization was being formed called the National Association of Professional Baseball Players. And just to be clear, they still spelled baseball as two words, base, ball. In 1871, at the age of 22 years old, Al Spaulding signed on with a team on the East Coast called the Boston Red Stockings. And when I first heard about this team name, I had mistakenly assumed that this was an early version of the Boston Red Sox, but it was not. The Red Stockings were a separate team that eventually changed their name to the Boston Braves as a way of differentiating themselves from the Boston Red Sox. The Boston Braves would later move to Milwaukee and then Atlanta, where they are today known as the Atlanta Braves. But back in the 1870s, when they were still the Red Stockings, their ace pitcher was Al Spaulding. 
In seven seasons with the Red Stockings, Spalding won 206 games against just 53 losses. He was a dominant pitcher. He also batted 323 to help his own cause. After those seven seasons, he decided to make a move back to Illinois and play for the team there called the Chicago White Stockings. After several iterations, that team is today known as the Chicago Cubs. He went 46-13 in three seasons with the White Stockings, even serving as a team manager for two of those three seasons. He also influenced a piece of baseball equipment that today is understood as being standard. Spalding popularized the baseball glove. Back in the 1870s, most players played baseball barehanded. A few players used gloves, but they were not considered very manly. The notion in the 1870s being that a real man used his bare hands. Well, Spalding began using a glove on his catching hand in order to take some of the sting away from catching barehanded. And because he was one of the most popular players in the league and the best pitcher around, the stigma around wearing gloves disappeared. And suddenly, players all over the league started to wear baseball gloves. So if you watch a baseball game today, you no longer have to wonder who made the baseball glove popular. It was Al Spaulding in the 1870s. Now, while he was still a player with the White Stockings, you could already see the future business executive that he would become. He was an incredible administrator and organizer. He worked with his boss, the owner of the White Stockings, Williams Holbert. Spaulding had an idea for a new version of a baseball league that was much more about business in its orientation. Now, here is what I mean. The national association that Spaulding played in as part of both the Red Stockings and the White Stockings was more of a gentleman's game. While the players were technically professional since they were being compensated, the entire league operated more like an amateur baseball league. The idea was more around recreation and just having a good time. The compensation was not much and most players had some sort of a day job to help Help make ends meet. But Spaulding saw this as a serious business opportunity. He wanted to transform baseball into a real professional sport where players and owners could make enough money to make baseball their primary profession without the need for day jobs or winter jobs. Spaulding, along with Holbert, approached the owners of some of the other stronger clubs in the league. They approached Cincinnati, Louisville, St. Louis, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and Hartford, and they set up a secret meeting about leaving the National Association and forming a brand new league that was more of a straightforward business. They all agreed and signed on to what is now known as the National League. If you are a baseball fan, then you know that the National League is still alive and well with 15 teams across three divisions. They are now merged with the American League to form Major League Baseball. But we can thank Al Spaulding for getting the National League started. It was his idea. Now the sport was on a more professional footing with tickets being sold and stadiums being built. But Spalding had another idea that caught on with the other clubs and is considered standard today. Once he retired from the White Stockings as a player, he stayed with the organization as a part owner and president of the club. His idea was to take the team to a warmer city for spring training. The idea was to get in a couple of weeks of practice to prepare for the upcoming season. Now prior to this idea, players would just return to their club the day before the first game and then just go out there and play all summer. Spalding figured that spring training would be a great time to get the players back in shape, work on their defense, take some batting practice, and basically be fully ready to play on opening day. They ran their training camp in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where they figured the hot spring baths would be great therapy and preparation for an athlete's body. Well, the idea took the league by storm, and within just a couple of years, every team was doing it. A number of teams went to Arkansas, while others went down to Florida. Al Spalding was a man filled with great ideas. But his biggest idea, as far as I am concerned, was in basketball. 
and I'll be right back with a story of how this baseball man made an enormous impact in basketball. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts long sleeve shirts phone cases mugs blankets pillows towels and even shower curtains go to sportshistorynetwork.com row number one for access to the full row one catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15 percent discount off all prints on the row one pictorum gallery with coupon code shn15 follow the link on the show notes Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story of Al Spaulding. In the first half of the episode, we talked about his career in baseball as a player and an executive. He popularized the use of the baseball glove, he took the initiative in founding the modern National League, and he invented the idea of spring training, which is still used today. But his impact on basketball is what I really wanted to focus on. While he was still a player with the Chicago White Stockings in the late 1870s, he decided to start his own sporting goods company. The idea was primarily supplying sporting equipment to the general public as sports everywhere were becoming more popular. Not only was baseball gaining momentum, so was American football, golf, and tennis. Along with his brother Walter, they opened the first Spalding Sporting Goods Store in Chicago. The store was so popular that they expanded to 14 locations very, very quickly. From there, they decided to start manufacturing their own equipment, which was an opportunity to make even more profit. Manufacturing their own equipment cut out the middleman. They would no longer have to buy equipment wholesale in order to resell it at retail. They could then bring equipment in at cost and still sell it at retail prices. One of the first things that he made was a baseball. He wanted to make a better baseball. Back in the 1800s, baseballs were notoriously inconsistent. Some balls were harder or softer than others. He wanted a baseball that performed consistently, and his company quickly became the primary supplier of baseballs to the National League. He also made tennis balls and golf balls, and after that, they started to make almost every kind of sporting equipment. But here is where basketball comes in. The game of basketball was invented in 1891 by Dr. James Naismith. Although he was just James Naismith at the time, he would not earn his PhD until years after inventing the game. Anyway, Naismith had just invented the game in December of that year and introduced the idea of the game the following day to his physical education students. Today, we take for granted the idea of a proper basketball, a court, rims, and a backboard. But keep in mind that in the case of Naismith, he was introducing his students to a new game that he had literally just invented the night before. He did not have anything that looked like modern equipment available to him. He used peach baskets for the rims. He had asked the janitor of the building if he had some boxes that he could use for the new game. The janitor did not have any boxes. He only had a couple of peach baskets that Naismith could use but he had to return after he was done. And that, my friends, is how the game was almost called box ball. In a stroke of luck, what the janitor had available were baskets. And that is how we get the name basketball. 
Anyway, since Naismith did not have a proper basketball yet, he improvised and used a soccer ball. It was about the size that he had envisioned and it bounced fairly well. The game of basketball spread quickly, initially around the northeastern part of the United States. YMCA's around the country started setting up indoor courts. The game of basketball really took the country by storm. From a game that had only just been invented, was already being played as a demonstration sport at the Olympics just 13 years after it had been invented. Well, in 1894, just three years after the game was created, Al Spalding decided to start manufacturing basketballs to go with this new game. That gave the new sport legitimacy. It now had a ball that was designed specifically for that game. Of course, it looked almost nothing like today's ball. While the ball was roughly the same size as today's ball, it was made from real cow's leather. The leather panels were stitched together rather than glued together like today's ball. Also, the ball was smooth. It did not have those little bumps like today that give you better grip when dribbling. But the real thing that stuck out about the original ball was that it had laces on one side like a modern American football. They had to squeeze the rubber bladder into the leather casing. Then the leather casing had to be stitched closed. Today the panels are glued to the outside of the bladder so no stitches are required. But the main point is that it was Al Spalding who helped give this new game legitimacy by manufacturing an official basketball. He later began manufacturing rims and backboards. In reality, his motivation was financial. I mean, let us be real about it. He saw a growing sport that did not have an official ball. He owned a sporting goods company with manufacturing capabilities. It was a chance to make some money, but again, in that process, he helped give the sport a firm foundation. That fact alone makes Al Spalding one of the greatest contributors to the growing game of basketball. His impact was, and still is, tremendous. For decades, the Spalding Company made the official balls for the NBA. A couple of years ago, the NBA decided not to renew the contract and switched over to Wilson for the official NBA basketball. And that is too bad. The history of the Spalding Company and basketball is so intertwined. Spalding is the inventor of the actual ball used in basketball, and I think that should count for something. So if you have a Spalding basketball at home, take a look at it. Look at the name Spalding stamped on the one side of the ball. That is the name of the man who invented the ball that you are holding. I used to coach youth basketball when my kids were young, and I only ever bought Spalding basketballs to run my practices. I still have a huge bag full of them in my garage. As for Al Spalding, he passed away in 1915 at the age of 66. He has been gone over a hundred years, but his legacy lives on. His company still makes all kinds of sports equipment for a number of different sports. Unless something really goes wrong with the Spalding Company, I imagine that the company will be around for as long as sports are around. So hats off to Albert Goodwill Spalding, the inventor of the ball used for basketball, the greatest game in the world. Well, that is all for today. Join us next time when we share the story of a professional basketball player from the 1950s who went by the name of George Marcus. The only problem was that the name George Marcus was a fake name. The player was actually still in high school and used the fake name to protect his amateur status. The real player is now in the Basketball Hall of Fame and considered one of the top 10 players of all time. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of sports yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast. 
and check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.